the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to my friend, Derek Millett. Derek is part of my Weaponize Your Body team and is our lead tactical firearms instructor. He has over two decades experience as a civilian and military agent with considerable experience operating in both permissive and non-permissive environments with over a thousand days of combat experience. His law enforcement and military careers have included living in and training foreign militaries, intelligence services, and law enforcement agencies in North America, Africa, Europe, and the Middle and Far East. Derek has extensive experience training and certifying civilian and military personnel in the use of firearms, non-lethal and edge weapons, and unarmed close-quarter fighting. Derek's military and intelligence background also include security planning for sensitive and vulnerable locations and the transport and the protection of high-value individuals and assets. In this episode, we discuss the five pillars of self-preservation, what really happens when you have to protect yourself, and the 80% solution. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Okay, so D, here is my first question to you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question, uh, Rodney. Self-reliance uh, means an, uh, an ability to uh, handle your affairs independently uh, as best you can understanding that uh, there is uh, a time and a place for relying on other people, um, but it's, it's much more of a consensual matter. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I was just thinking when you were saying that, because that seems to be you know, a theme that, that has been presented throughout the, the few you know, podcasts I've done. When I, whenever I ask, you know, what do you feel you know, when you hear this, these terms, self-reliance, what does it actually mean for you? I was thinking at the same time as a, as a father, as I am, how important do you think that is for your son and for your kid, for your children in general? You know, also you got you got you got a son, you got some, you got two daughters. So how do you feel that that's important to them? Yeah, so it, it's it's of paramount import, importance, and uh, I, I think you know we've talked in the past, and you've seen some of my social media posts, both professionally and personally, uh, about the things that I do with with my children, specifically my son. He's the, the youngest so far. Uh, the, the, the activities that we uh, participate in, everything from self-preservation training, uh, whether that's striking, combatives, firearms, uh, all the way back, you know, given, you know, the, the circumstances that we see in the world we're experiencing now, uh, making sure that uh, they know how to start a fire. Uh, and then everything on that spectrum from uh, basic uh, shelter, uh, fire to how do you, how do you cook? Uh, how do you hammer a nail? Uh, can you fix a car, change a tire? 
to you know points of uh, preservation, uh, firearms training, uh, you know, at the end of the spectrum. Yeah, that really encompasses a, a wide spectrum of self-reliance training, right? Which is really good. So let's pivot a little bit here. Let's work into what we said we were going to talk about. And let's focus on the five pillars of self-preservation. I think let's take them one by one. What do you mean by that? And why do you think it's really important? But I think it's important that we work through each one, you know, independently. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I've, I've written some blog uh, articles and I, I've uh, talked about and, and written about my five pillars of of self-preservation, starting sort of at the beginning and understanding, uh, you know, for your listeners, Rodney, the analogy that uh, I was trying to uh, get across is uh, this bridge. And uh, at any point, if one of the pillars, and that's uh, physical conditioning, open hand, closed hand, edged weapons, firearms, and I've described some of those as intermediate weapons. The bridge won't fall if any one pillar is not as strong as the other. But if all five of them, if you work in coordination, that bridge isn't going to fall. You can run a train across it as, as many times as you want. And starting with the first one, physical conditioning, something that I've preached to, to the guys in my military unit for the last 20 years is strong things are hard to kill. So uh, on a very base level, being physically fit, being healthy, both mentally and physically, is really a, a, a core aspect of self-reliance. And at some level, if I had to choose one of those pillars, that's, that's going to be foundational. That's going to be base. That's where all of the other pillars are, are going to be reliant on that. Yeah, because there's something to be said for that, right? If you're not looking after yourself physically, you're not looking at what you're fueling your body with, how you're looking after your body ultimately, you're not going to be able to apply any of those other pillars. Or, you know, if you did, they're never going to match up to the potential level that they could be. And actually, the skill level might be too low that actually when you do need them, you're not actually going to be able to apply them. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you don't have the physical and mental capacity and that, that uh, it's, it requires both. So, you know, I, um, I, I've talked about and written about some of my medical um, conditioning and, and, and issues where, you know, I, I go into the, uh, I see my doctor for my general uh, practitioner. I see my dermatologist to make sure that uh, I'm not going to have a, a skin cancer issue all the way to chiropractic on, on some of the uh, uh, other issues. Because with the combatives training that we do, you know, if I start, uh, if, I, if I'm all jammed up and, and my vertebrae are misaligned, and I can't feel with my hands. One, I can't, uh, I can't continue to box effectively, and I can't effectively change a tire. Again, back on a on a non self preservation uh, matter. Uh, working on uh, my car, uh, teaching my children, uh, and I've done this with the older ones. Uh, again, outside of the self preservation arena, but on self reliance. And I think you've met uh, my daughters. They're not they're not big tall women. They're they're fairly petite. They know how to change a tire. You know, they can get out and block their tire, uh, use the jack properly, and and swing a tire. Uh, that, that goes to physical conditioning as well. But segueing that back into the concept of losing the feeling in my hands, you know, if I go to the chiropractor and take care of my health, well, my body works functionally and, and uh, I can do all those other things. Yeah, exactly. So what would be the second pillar then, building off that? So we've got the physical 
structure. You know, we need to be in physically good shape. We need to make sure that we fuel ourselves appropriately. That in itself will lend to having a better mental perspective on things. And then where do we move to next? Yeah, the, the next step on, the, on that particular continuum is open hand, you know, open hand self-preservation. And, and I prefer the term self-preservation to self-defense, you know, to, to uh, quote uh, or to paraphrase Rory Miller, one of the things that you can do in self-preservation is run. That's not always, uh, it's not always a bad idea. And sometimes that's what you have to do. Uh, you know, I, I want my students, my family, my friends to survive. So uh, that, that's uh, perfectly acceptable. It, it changes a little bit, Rodney, when I'm coaching law enforcement and military or training them, different rules. But uh, open hand self-preservation, and that's learning how to box, kickbox, and uh, wrestle, uh, you know, preferably jujitsu. That's the next step in the pillar. And, uh, you know, I've, I've spent the last 20 to 25 years training, again, a spectrum of folks uh, ranging from young children at our wrestling club. It's not jujitsu, Rodney, but it's, uh, it's foundational wrestling, folk style and freestyle, uh, competitive for children, all the way up to, you know, uh, again, uh, U.S. and allied military and law enforcement agencies. Now, I think it's useful to make a distinction. As you noted, you prefer the term self-preservation, which I prefer as well. When I think about self-defense, I always, when I think of that term, it it seems reactionary to me, right? You, you know, walking down the street, suddenly you're confronted by a situation and now you apply self-defense, right? Where when you think about self-preservation, you already have done your homework before you even walk down that street. So let's say you're in a part of the world that you haven't been to before. You've done your homework. You found out where the rough spots are, the kind of common crimes that there might be, what you might have to encounter when we start talking about violence. And then when you hit the ground, you are self-aware, you have situational awareness, and you're taking note of what everything is happening around you so that hopefully you never get to a situation where suddenly you're confronted by a threat. I mean, does that happen? Absolutely. But I think not as often as people would like to think. I think a lot of times when people say, oh, you know, I've got myself into this situation and I had to protect myself, suddenly appeared out of nowhere. Is that actually true? I don't think for most instances that is true. The reason it was because you were on your phone walking down the street and not being aware, and then suddenly you were confronted with a problem, right? Had you put the phone away and had situational awareness, you would have picked up on a potential threat at least 10 seconds in advance. And so you would have had time then to reorient yourself and make a different decision and uh, change the way that you react to that situation. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that common sense is common anymore. And, and we, we've talked in the past about exactly that, where put your phone away, pay attention. Uh, there's uh, when the hair on the back of your neck starts to go up, uh, you know, stand up or you feel, you know, odd in your, your stomach. Uh, yeah, that's that's your warning signs. Uh, you know, the other thing that we see here in the U.S., and, and you know, quite frankly, I've seen it in other countries, I've, I've worked throughout the world professionally, is there's this belief that I have a right to go to this place or that place and be here. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe you do have a right to be there. But I question your judgment. If you think that it's a bad place, why would you want to go there? You know, I'm, you know there, there's usually alternatives. Uh, and try one of those. So that's something that when I coach, especially, uh, you know, uh, teenagers and, and young adults here in North America, I, I get that sometimes. And I, I have to 
reinforce that, yes, maybe you do have a right to go to that place, but just because you have the right doesn't mean you should. And uh, again, there's, a, there's, another, there's another bar, there's another park, there's another mall. And, uh, you know, anecdotal story with, with uh, my children one time, we were at a particular gas station, we were going on vacation and uh, the hair on the back of my neck was standing up. We were just using the lavatory and getting some snacks. I turned to one of my daughters. She had my son, and I said, get in the truck now. And uh, they know dad well enough that uh, they went and they got in the truck. I got in. The doors were locked. We drove away. And, and uh, you know, immediately my children started going, dad, what's wrong? What's going on? And I'm just driving uh, safely, but at a, at a pretty good clip. Right, Rodney? I'm, you know, I went out of the area, and... and uh, he said, what's wrong, dad? And I said, I don't know. Something was wrong. We don't need, here to, we don't need to be here to find out. And uh, that's, you know, maybe that's, uh, you know, several decades of experience, but it's a preservation uh, mindset versus a, a reactionary defense. I was armed. I could have stayed and, you know, forced my way to, you know, get that Kit Kat bar and then put myself in a situation, put my children in a situation listen, guys, meaning my children, it's not worth it. We're out of here. And, and we can get snacks later. I can get gas later. So different, different mindset. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a huge advocate um, when we talk about personal sovereignty. But at the end of the day, there are bad people out there that will do bad things to you. And I definitely agree with you. And this is something that's come up on other episodes is that there is a attitude of people wanting to go anywhere in the world and just be able to traverse that landscape as they would wherever they came from, right? So for example, let's say I was brought up in Singapore. It's, it's a beautiful place. It's relatively safe for the most part. You can walk around there anytime you want to. I mean, I've been to Singapore so many times. I've been on the streets at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning. I've never encountered any problems, right, at all. But if I grew up in that environment and then I suddenly found myself in Pakistan, right, and have that same kind of mindset where I think, you know, I don't have, why should I have to change my behavior? I should be able to just be free to do whatever I want to do because that's where I come from. You're going to be in for a rude awakening. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, s similar stories. I, you know, I've, I've briefed, uh, you know, U.S. and allied uh, sailors and Marines ad nauseum uh, as we go into other countries uh, as, as guests, resident guests. And, you know, part of the, the, uh, the briefing, uh, and it's truncated, Rodney, is you're not in America right now. There are other rules. You're a guest in this country. And, and quite frankly, here are some places that are, are you know, go zones and no-go zones. This area is dangerous. You know, sometimes my young Marines go, that's exactly where, you know, I'm almost flagging them as places to go, right? <laughs> no, guys, this is, this, is, this is bad. Don't go there. Uh, you know better, and all it takes really is is one time, and uh, you know where something bad happens, and um, lessons learned for the whole unit. So, when you think about empty hand, I mean, what would you say would be the primary skill sets that somebody would have to develop? Because there's, as you know, right, we've had this conversation. There is a ton of stuff out there. There's a lot of people claiming expertise. There's a lot of complexity, actually, if you look at what gets presented on on YouTube under the you know that term of reality based self defense. It, it, it couldn't be further from reality if you wanted it to be right. And this complexity of movements and sequences. And I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking, you know what? Simple is the best. 
And if you're going to go in with that kind of mindset where you're going to try to pull off complex sequences against, you know, certain attacks, that's even, again, we can get into that. Even if you somehow have a magical um, part of your brain that you can access what the other person's going to do. So you have ESP, right? You're not even going to know what the person's going to do. Let's just be really honest, right? And so I think there's a, there's a huge misconception out there on what actually constitutes real self-preservation, at least in the empty hand realm, and what should actually be focused on. Yeah, no, it's, it, and you're right. We have, you know, we've talked about it, and I've had what we call uh, arguments. Uh, about these where you know you're sitting at the bar having a beer uh with your 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 friends and you go well what's the best um style you know is it uh is it boxing muay thai jujitsu and and again it's a a bargument because there's there's uh you know everybody's got an opinion right and and many of them are uh you know as you mentioned self-proclaimed experts that uh don't actively spar against uh a resistant opponent. Um, they maybe haven't uh, had any uh, real life experience. You know, mine uh, includes uh, lethal encounters, both in the military and law enforcement, uh, civilian law enforcement perspectives. And uh, what I would say when it comes to open hand self-preservation techniques is, and, and this is this is my assessment, a combination of of striking, we could call that boxing, uh, with at least uh, a rudimentary understanding of grappling. So if you get a system that has basic evolutionary de- designed actions and reactions that are striking and wrestling, you're probably going to be better off, not probably, you're going to be better off than trying to learn some John Wick or Jason Bourne movie type stuff. Because once, once the proverbial stuff hits the fan, and you start to go into auditory and ocular exclu- uh, occlusion, so you don't hear anything, you have tunnel vision, and you lose your, your ability for fine motor skills where we're doing these really fancy parries and, and eye pokes and 18-point and, uh, movements. They don't work. Um, you know, I, I know from personal experience, my hands largely become clubs. It's like I don't even have fingers at the end of it. And so, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, you know, there's some very good systems, crazy monkey weaponize your body where we have these techniques that are, are, um, when I use the term simple, it's, that's a compliment. They're, they're, uh, based in our evolutionary response. So when somebody throws a punch at, at me or, or quite frankly, anybody, what do we do? We throw our hands up, right? We try to stop that. So instead of trying to, to teach somebody over 30 years to do this fancy parry movement, and, uh, and, and I've studied uh, other martial arts. I, I have a background in, in Krav and Aikido, and, and there, there is certainly some value to those specific arts. They're, they're too hard to do when you have an adrenaline dump. And again, I don't mean to, re- to repeat myself or beat a dead horse, but I can't hear anything. I can't see anything. And my fingers don't move anymore. What do I have? I've got two uh, maces at the, at the end of these 32 inch uh, sticks. Right. And the same thing with my legs. So, you know, big fan of starting out with a, uh, a foundation and striking 
And then, and I, I, I upset my, my, uh, my brothers in the jujitsu community. I, I think I, I like to put that in secondarily because I don't want to go to the ground. I think that's the worst position that I can ever be in in a fight. But you may be taken to the ground, Rodney, as you know, and so you've got to be able to fight out of it, and that's going to be your wrestling. So, or my term, wrestling, jujitsu, wrestling, judo. So, no, look, I mean, I totally agree with you. I was just thinking as you were saying that I think that's the thing that doesn't get taken into account, right? The the physiological changes that are going to happen to your body and how that's going to impact your ability to make the moves that you want to move, and so. If you look at it like that, then you can see how they get to this complexity because anything is possible when you don't have that adrenaline dump, right? When you don't have all those physiological changes, you can pull off anything when you're not stressed out, right? Put somebody in a stress position and then you're going to see, well, hold on a second. A lot of this stuff is not going to come to bear in the moment in time when I need it. Yeah. You know, uh, Rodney, I, I was a, um, a firearms, uh, integrated use of force instructor was the fancy term, but uh, firearms and uh, kind of an open hand instructor. We called it defensive tactics at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. And I've spent time as an instructor, uh, both in the, at the divisional level, which is out in the field, and then at our Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, watching hundreds and probably thousands and thousands of hours of fighting, uh, fights, shoots, both law enforcement, non-law enforcement. And, you know, I, I've got more than anecdotal evidence of uh, officers, because this was our perspective, being uh, involved in uh, use of force incidents. And then it's on tape. And then we can go into the internal investigation. And we will ask them, did you see this? Did you hear that? Why did you do this? And they'll say, I, I didn't hear this. I didn't see that. I didn't do that. And it's on tape, Rodney. So, and these men and, and women weren't lying. They just had, again, auditory and ocular occlusion. They didn't hear, they didn't see, and they were perfectly honest when they said, I never heard that other officer or that agent say X, Y, and Z. And, and uh, I, one, I think that's fascinating, but two, uh, all the fancy stuff that they were being taught at the time or maybe getting uh, experience on their own, they didn't do it out in the field. You know, when the bad guy or the bad guys worse, are attacking you. Again, you go down to major muscle movements, you know, and, and skipping forward a little bit in the pillars to firearms. You know, you, I, I get lots of guys and, and students that tell me they know how to shoot and they want to do this or they want to do that. And uh, they get into these, uh, you know, modified stances. And I can, I can tell them uh, you're not going to do that when the, when, again, when the proverbial stuff hits the fan, this is what's going to happen. And again, it's based on thousands of hours of video. And again, my own lethal encounters. This is what happens. It's on tape. I can tell you. So I can train you to what's going, what you're going to do. Or I can try to train you with these fancy John Wick moves and you're not going to do it. And you're going you're gonna to fail to your lowest training standard. If I'm training to do dumb, ineffective stuff, you're going to try to do it. And that's probably going to cost your life. So let's move to the third pillar, right? So we've got first pillar. We're talking about the importance of physical and mental part of being in shape, in diet, getting your, getting your mindset right, moving to empty hand, focusing on what's simple, direct, and functional. You said, and I agree, you know, develop your striking base game, boxing, if we want to call it that, 
It's definitely, if you watch thousands and thousands of fights, that's what you're going to see. People using something that looks like boxing. Maybe bad boxing, but it's boxing, right? And then, you know, have, have, a, have, have a wrestling game. And if you get taken to the ground, make sure that you know how to get back up to your feet because I agree, you do not want to be on the ground in the middle of a shitstorm where you have more than one person likely attacking you. Where do we move to now on the third pillar? Yeah, intermediate weapons is the, is the third pillar. And uh, again, you know, having trained uh, military and law enforcement personnel throughout the world, sometimes these tools are not available to you. Uh, they largely are in America, but again, with a patchwork of, of um, ability, depending on the state or region that you're in. And when I, when I classify intermediate weapons, what I'm really talking about when you go out and buy something is like a, an expandable baton, uh, pepper spray, or some type of chemical irritant. Um, and, you know, our, our law enforcement officers carry them regularly. Uh, I, I do myself. And what I would say is it's the one pillar that almost no one trains on. After the academy or uh, academies, uh, nobody really gets pepper sprayed again. Nobody uses inert spray. And uh, it was always a, a point of failure with my uh, federal agency anyways, that uh, we didn't do that. You can get inert sprays. And, and it's important to not necessarily be sprayed with a, with a pepper spray, Rodney, although I've I've been pepper sprayed a bunch, both, uh, you know, as, a, as an academy student myself, then as an instructor, because the best part about being an instructor at the academy is getting to be a bad guy, you know, and, and, and you know, sort of uh, beat up on your, your best students, uh, and then they pepper spray you. But uh, part of that is so that uh, I recommend it's required, should be required training throughout U.S. law enforcement. You carry pepper spray. You should be pepper sprayed, not so that you feel or understand what it's like to be sprayed, but so that you understand you can fight through it. The immediate reaction with oleoresin capsicum isn't uh, blindness, but it is an irritant. Your, your nose does start to run. Uh, the capillaries in your eyes begin to expand, and that's why it, uh, it, it closes off your vision, right? And what I found was I could take a direct shot in the face with it and continue to fight with vision for a couple more minutes. A couple more minutes. It's not incapacitating. Other agents, other officers, because it's based on your own physiology, shut down a lot faster. Um, and uh, again, part of it is the fights, you're not dead. The fight's not over. So you have to, you have to continue to respond and keep fighting. And if that's extraction, then do that. Uh, if that's, you know, locking down on your firearm and, and protecting it so it isn't taken from you, do that. And when you're out uh, on the streets, maybe even as a, as a, uh, as a civilian, uh, pepper spray blows in the wind. So you need to know what it feels like. Get away. And then as you move to batons, you know, our, our officers do tend to train with those. But uh, out of the whole spectrum, it's the least trained on. I have inert spray. I want to know where it goes in different uh, as a training tool. So, you know, I'll spray it inside uh, a closed area. It has a smell to it, but it doesn't have the, 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 the pepper oil in it. I can see the distance as it foam. Is it a stream? Then I take it outside in the rain and the wind and see what happens. One, so I know whether it's going to be an effective tool and its dispersal. 
Um, that, that's the, the third one. I'm not a big fan of, um, you know, coubatons or keys uh, that you hold in your wrist where the, you've got them poking out, you know, other sort of parlor tricks that I've seen in the community are these, uh, you know, steel pens, you know, outside, I don't think they're very effective. Nobody trains with them. If you don't train with them again, when, when the stuff hits the fan, you're not going to think, Oh, I need to pull out this cool. I have one Rodney. Cause I got it as a test. It's a, it's a steel pen from Gerber. It's a fantastic pen and you, you can punch through drywall with it, but I don't train to it. So I'm not going to sit there and think, Hey, let me pull out this steel pen from my pocket and use it as a defensive tool. It's just not going to happen. And again, there's there's a few other sort of parlor tricks. And then we do move into, uh, on the military side of the house, there are some other tools out there that are largely long, um, illegal for most folks to possess. And that's when you start getting into, you know, slap jacks and uh, brass knuckles and things like that. I don't carry those, but um, I have been through training programs where I've been taught to use them and taught how to try to counter them. Those are typically kind of a, it's a like a, a red line in most countries. They're just uh, not permissible, but something that's out there and, and folks need to be aware of. I think the bottom line of what you're saying is if you're going to carry any kind of defensive capability, right, whatever that weapon may be, anywhere from, like you said, those pens, doesn't really matter. If you're not training with it, if you're not putting the time to actually develop the skill with it and know where the limitations are, rather just don't carry it because actually it's going to probably end up being your, your, worst, uh, your worst enemy in a fight. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably going to be used against you because the, 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 the bad guy or bad guys that uh, are attacking you uh, or robbing you or, or doing whatever bad things they are, maybe they have trained with them or they're going to see it as a... Uh, as an object of opportunity. And it, it's actually a pretty good segue into the next pillar, which is edge weapons. Yeah, let's move into that for sure. Yeah, so I, I, I happen to be in kind of an edged weapons guy. I, uh, I train and train others on you know, lethal tools on a regular basis. And uh, I, I don't know what it's like um, everywhere else, but in America, especially with the law enforcement and military personnel that I train, just quite frankly, in North America, everybody's got a pocket knife, right? Uh, and, and by pocket knife, I don't mean a, uh, a small, you know, one and three quarter inch blade from a Swiss Army knife. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, pocket folders, you know, like a flip it knife. It's got a clip on it and all that. And, uh, you know, I've, I've trained with SWAT units and the guys carry those. And, and I ask about their training and they typically don't train with them. So what do you... Like, what are you opening your mail with it? Uh, you know, that's a $200 mail opener. Like, that's crazy, right? I happen to be a, a big proponent of karambits, and I train with those per, uh, on purpose. Uh, I'm comfortable with those. It's, and it, quite frankly, an ancient blade. I like them because it has the circular ring on it so that I can put a finger through it, which helps me retain it. But again, um, you know, if you want to buy high-end, high-quality edged weapons, in this case, karambits. And, you know, you're looking at things like uh, CRKT Provokes or Emerson uh, Combat Karambits. You know, they'll set you back, um, you know, uh, $100, $200. And are you training with it? Because now you need to buy a trainer. The trainer's probably $100 to $150. And for, for your listeners that maybe 
don't know what I'm talking about with an edged weapon trainer, it, it looks exactly like the one you're carrying. It just has a, a, a non-sharpened edge to it so that when you deploy it, you know, how do you carry it? How do you deploy it? It's as close to the one that you're going to carry as it can be without having that edged weapon. Additionally, both as, a, as an instructor at the academy uh, and in my own personal training, I, I don't have any of these as karambits, but I do have so-called shock knives. Uh, they have an electri- uh, they're electrified, and that's pretty good negative reinforcement when uh, you know, you're, you're training with them and you have a scenario where you've been overwhelmed by a bad guy or you, you didn't listen to the hairs that stood up on the back of your neck or you insisted on going into a, an area that you probably shouldn't have gone to in the first place. Those attacks, especially by edged weapons guys or you know, blade guys, are, are violent, they're aggressive, they're fast, and they're dirty. And when you're just training with, you know, your buddy, uh, you know, your, your fellow patrol officer, your fellow agent, you don't get that with those trainers, you don't get the shock. And, and um, you know, when I first started uh, with edged weapons about 20 years ago, um, I was trained by a, uh, the state of Georgia Department of Corrections uh, officer. We brought him to the academy because they were used to prisoners creating shanks, uh, modified edged weapons. And, uh, you know, again, we watched hundreds and hundreds of hours of, uh, of training and attack by prisoners uh, in the Georgia State Penal uh, Institutions. And then this uh, corrections officer, we bring him on staff. And then he attacked us just like uh, we would have been attacked in that prison. The difference, Rodney, was we had these, these electrified knives. And when you get knocked over and somebody's and, – and understand this is still – this is realistic training, but it's a guy that isn't actually poking us because that – you know, the, it's a training issue with the edge weapons. But he's sawing on you or he's slashing on you, and, it, and it's got a shock, you know, and it's a painful shock. Um, you go, oh – okay, ding, ding, ding. That's crazy. I don't like that. And so I, I, I hope I've, I've kept us on track. I, I said, I don't ever want to get stuck and I don't ever want to get sawed on. So I've got to train this way and it, it costs money and it costs time, but it's, it's important. And if you're going to carry a $200 edged weapon that's going to be used for something other than opening your MRE or your mail, you need to train with it. Or I would recommend getting a, you know, a, a, a small, you know, a small pocket knife that's got, you know, a, a one inch blade that folds up, you know, not the, not the Ranger, Ranger Rick Commando Joe type. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's move to pillar five. Let's talk about that. That's firearms, right? Yeah. Firearms. And, uh, you know, uh, it's got a special place in, in, in my heart, Rodney, you know, um, I've been an integrated use of force instructor, so that ranges from, you know, again, uh, PT to opens X. Quite frankly, it's the five pillar model that, that I uh, designed. The issue with firearms and carrying them is I tell folks, you know, they, they come to me and they say, hey, Derek. And again, it's kind of a bargument. Which firearm should I buy? What's the best? You know, my short answer is if you need a firearm, the best firearm is the one in your hand, right? doesn't matter what the caliber is or the make, you just want it to go bang. But if you buy one or you're going to carry one, please get the training, you know, either from me or, or you know, at least 
goes somewhere. And any time that you use a firearm in a self-preservation scenario, it's now at the lethal uh, range. You know, again, the, the John Wick and Jason Bourne stuff is cool in the movies. And I've said this several times, when you go into auditory and, and ocular, uh, you know, you, you like tunnel vision and tunnel hearing, you can't see anything, you can't hear anything. If you really think that you're going to shoot another weapon out of somebody's hand, or you're going to shoot them in the, the thigh or the knee, that's not going to happen. I train my uh, folks to shoot to stop. So that's largely uh, going to be, say, a, an orange to a grapefruit size uh, target in the center of someone's chest. We, we just want to stop them. It's ridiculous to think that the average person is going to, again, shoot a, shoot a gun or a, a knife out of a somebody's hand, you know, on, on the SWAT level, you know, those guys have difficulty doing those types of things. Tier one operators, yeah, those guys, that's a different level, but uh, you, you need to get training. Everything's going to be at lethal and you have to prepare yourself mentally, emotionally, and quite frankly, financially, if you're going to carry a firearm, because there's probably going to be a, there's going to be a criminal investigation. There may be uh, a, a, prosecution. And if there isn't, at least in North America, there's probably going to be a civil lawsuit. So you're going to have to get the lawyers involved. And understand, Rodney, that's in what I would call a clean shoot. Everything that went wrong for the, like for the bad guy, and, and you did everything correct correctly, again, you're still going to be uh, Mirandized by law enforcement. <laughs> They're going to take your weapon. You know, it's, it's a very mentally taxing and financially difficult uh, situation. And, and again, uh, once that's done, something that we don't talk a lot about on the law enforcement or the military side, but especially for uh, non-sworn uh, folks, the civilians is once you take a life, or even if you don't, even if your assailant lives, everybody in your community is gonna look at you differently. And you're gonna have to uh, address that emotionally and, and, and mentally because I, I know after, you know, my scenarios, everybody looked at me differently, you know, and I know there were, you know, whispers and, and talking and I was prepared uh, mentally. My mentors, you know, when I first uh, joined law enforcement, first joined the military, we had conversations. I did professional reading, but it's still a shock to the system. So, you know, because these, these guys that were your friends, your neighbors, whatever, they look at you and, and you know, you're the guy that was involved in that shooting, right? You know, and, and there's a period of time you can't talk about it, you know, for your own legal protections. No, I think that's definitely food for thought. I definitely, you know, when I think about it, not many people talk about what you just talked about, right? When we talk about firearms, it's all about, you know, the tactical stuff and I guess the cool stuff, but they don't talk about what's the aftermath of actually using that weapon. Yeah, you know, it's and it's uh, something that I started doing at uh, the academy. And then as a military agent, I talk to my guys about it on a regular basis. Uh, you know, I do have some recommended readings for them. Uh, fortunately, my staff, both in my civilian positions and my and my military positions, I'm still a reservist in the in the U.S. military, so I have this part time uh, job. You guys have to be prepped, uh, and and they're. They're mature enough, they're senior enough that fortunately, um, you know, I, I think that they're all ready for it. But as I bring on new staff, um, you know, hey, here's, 
you know, Rodney, here's your required reading, uh, this, and then we're going to talk about it because I want you ready in case, you know, the, these horrible scenarios are thrust on you. Um, I want you destroyed mentally. You're going to have a hard enough time addressing these things when uh, internal affairs comes and takes your weapon, or if you're a civilian, just, you know, the, the homicide detective comes and takes it, and then you didn't do anything wrong, you want, and you want to tell everyone that. But the first thing that you have to do, and I've told my, my, my agents and officers that, is you just keep your mouth shut. Don't talk. Get in the back of the cruiser, wait, we'll get you an attorney. You know, if you don't need to go to the hospital, we're going to get you an attorney, and he's going to tell you the same. I happen to be an attorney, but I'm not your attorney. And, you know, <laughs> I say, just don't talk. Just don't, you know. And, and they, they go, hey, chief, you know, I want to, you know, this, hey, don't say a word to me. Be quiet. I'm, this, is a pres- this is a preservation issue for you. You'll, you'll get your day in court, so. So let's talk um, finally about the 80% solution. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so it was something that, um, you know, when I was listening, uh, and this was, you know, Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, so we're talking the early, the early 2000s. Um, it was a term that he used, and I've adopted it and modified it since then. The 80% solution, I look at it, and some of this is uh, when I train, uh, you circling back to, to self-reliance and training my children, my loved ones, uh, clients, fill in the blank. Right now, let's get to an 80% solution. I know that you want to be a Golden Gloves boxer, but that's going to take years. I know that you want to, I'm using these as examples, Rodney. I know that you want to shoot as well as I do, but this is the first time you've ever stepped on the range. You want to be a black belt in JITS, and those are all good goals, and we're all striving towards that. But let's get to an 80% solution. Uh, So let's reach a point where you are combat effective in striking. So uh, you're not a golden gloves. You maybe aren't even gloved, right? You don't have a ranking system. Um, Let's get you on the mat and understand, again, that it's it's a wonderful idea and goal uh, to set, but let's get you combat effective in wrestling. Let's get you combat effective in firearms. Let's get you combat effective, 80% solution. You know, I'm certainly still working on those goals, uh, you know, I, I probably uh, am classified as a, as a combat expert in firearms, but I'm still working on my striking goals. I'm still working on JITs, uh, you know, as I find those types of things with new students. Uh, also, you can't compare yourself to, to Rodney. You can't compare yourself to me on these particular issues. Uh, I, I had a student uh, that I just took out on the range a few weeks ago who had never picked up a firearm before. And uh, she was a fantastic student. And, and in less than two hours, she went from some firearms fear to shooting neutralizing shots, right? Which is very good progression in two hours. One of the things that I talked about with her was if you look, and she's seen me shoot before because I demonstrate things. If you come onto the range and you immediately want to be as good as me, you're setting yourself up for failure. Any more than if I went to, um, you know, pick, pick your expert in something. If I went to a, a master chef and they were trying to teach me how to make a souffle and it wasn't as delicious as theirs or as pretty as theirs my first go, that's a, a ridiculous uh, expectation on my part. 
but I might be able to get to 80% where it's for my first try, it's edible. It's not terrible looking and uh, we're working, we're moving from there. That's what I mean by the 80% solution. And after you reach that, you know, uh, I think we've both sort of preached this 1% per day, you know, and you're never, you're never going to be perfect. Perfect is unattainable. Um, I, I think we can, uh, you know, we can strive for perfection and we'll tolerate excellence, but, um, you know, as long as we're, we're putting it out on the mat or putting it out there, working towards getting better, that's successful. No, that's valuable. So coming to the end, D, if you, you know, if you think about leaving the listener with something, your final words of motivation, what do you think they should know at this point? Yeah. So, um, you know, I wish I had a, a, a catchy phrase or, or something like that. And, and maybe this is, but, you know, uh, learn how to fight, learn how to shoot and learn how to stop the bleed. Uh, something that we didn't really talk about uh, was the medical aspect of, of self-preservation and, and reliance. But that's sort of uh, my, you know, top three, learn how to fight, learn how to shoot, learn how to stop the bleed. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.